You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, So, I talked about COVID conspiracies at the top of last week's show, so I probably shouldn't talk about Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor to the president of the United States, who claimed on a QAnon conspiracy podcast last week that the CDC is secretly planning to vaccinate Trump voters by putting vaccines in salad dressings. Because we all watched the January 6th insurrection and thought, those people hate their country, but they sure do love their leafy greens. So I'm not going to talk about that. And I talked about Catholics at the top of the previous week's show, so I probably shouldn't talk about the Catholic priest who was arrested in Italy last week after spending $120,000 he stole from the church on drugs for the drug-fueled gay orgies he was hosting. That's how the paper described those orgies, drug-fueled, as opposed to all those gay orgies fueled by solar or wind or thermal or carbs. Anyway, this priest got caught importing a leader of GHB, the date rape drug, from the Netherlands. Edie Gourmet blamed it on the bossa nova. Father Spignazzi blamed it on the cocaine vortex. The cocaine vortex swallowed me, Father Spignazzi said in court. The drug made me betray my parishioners. So for those of you keeping score at home, rape 100 kids, get transferred, steal 100K, get arrested. The Catholic Church, ladies and gentlemen, somehow still in business. But I'm not going to talk about that either. Maybe I'll talk about Marco Rubio instead or his emails to me at any rate. I don't know how I got on Marco Rubio's fundraising email list, but his emails over two days, just two days, had me wondering whether Marco is okay. I'm just going to read the subject lines of the emails that came, again, over two days. Hey, friend. Hey, friend. Hey, friend. I'm begging. I'm begging, friend. I can't believe this. I'm begging, friend. I'm begging, Friend, I'm begging. Friend, I'm begging. Patriot, I'm begging. Friend, I'm begging. Patriot, I'm begging. You're forcing my hand, friend. Friend, I'm begging. Friend, I'm begging. Patriot, I'm begging. Jesus Christ, Marco Rubio spends more time on his knees than I do, or Father Spignazzi does. Also, Marco Rubio is disintegrating. Has anyone else noticed this? Have you seen him lately? He used to be hot for a politician, which is a very low bar, but still. And now he looks like Vincent Donna Frio at the end of the first Men in Black movie? Eating Trump's ass for five years is rotting Marco Rubio from the inside out. And it would be sad if he didn't deserve it, which he does. So, like, anyway, not going to talk about COVID conspiracy theories or Catholics or Marco Rubio, who is a Catholic. Instead, I'm going to talk about that receipt, the one that went viral over the weekend. Maybe you saw it on the Twitter. A credit card charge slip for dinner. Peaches tweeted it, and Peaches said of this receipt, this is a real first date, y'all. And the amount? $741.53 for king crab legs, lobster mac and cheese, a giant ice cream sundae, 65 bucks, and a $380 gold leaf plated steak done medium. Apparently, that's the specialty of the house at the steak market, a restaurant in Atlanta, where this first date took place. Now, people can spend their money however they like. Some people have too much money. Some people should be paying higher taxes. And some people who don't consider themselves sex workers sure do place a lot of importance on being bought things. Expensive meals, drinks, gifts, 
by people who want to get in their pants, which seems transactional to me, kind of sex work adjacent. But what do I know? Gay men and our first dates, yeah, they look a little different. Terry and I had our first date, which was an impromptu affair, in a private toilet stall in a gay bar. The woman who posted this receipt got so much grief on Twitter that she did the only reasonable thing, the thing that everyone should do when they get grief on Twitter. She doubled down. She went back to that same restaurant and ordered another one of those content $400 gold-plated steaks and put that up on Twitter too. Now, my only thought, my only suggestion when I saw that, when I saw the original tweet that went completely viral, you know what I'm going to say. I hope they fucked first. But of course they didn't because the kind of person who needs someone to spend nearly a grand on a first date to impress them, that isn't the kind of person who fucks you in advance of the first date. They want to see that charge slip and they want to see that charge clear before they fuck you. So to the guy who fucked the woman who had the gold-plated steak and the lobster mac and cheese and the $65 sundae, I hope that went well. I hope she didn't explode after you slip the dick in or suddenly empty your bowels or puke all that gold leaf plated steak all over your lap. Unless you like that sort of thing, in which case you got your money's worth. Good job. Job well done. Hope you enjoyed that date. All right. Coming up on the micro savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's and joining me on the Magnum, which you can subscribe to at savage.love twice as much show, no ads, more guests, more calls, Adam Smith, author of Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures, joins me to talk about poppers, gay men, our gay past, and our queer future. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. Just calling in with a sex success story. So recently, I came out as non-binary and been doing more stuff with that. And I ended up getting myself a strap-on. And I am completely a bottom. And my husband will usually call me his good girl. And that really helps me come. Um, but just recently, he went down on me. And, uh, you know, he's sucking my cock and telling me about how awesome it is. And, you know, it just feels so great. And, of course, it feels great for me. And then, uh, you know, he threw me on my back and then fucked me in the ass with my cock rubbing up against him and came really hard and told me his good boy to come really hard and fuck that orgasm was good. Thanks for calling and sharing your wonderful success story. And congrats on having a partner who's not just down for probably the social dimensions of your non-binary identity, but also the potential for new kinds of sexual play and sexual connection that he could go with you from good girl and you hearing good girl and not making you come to good boy. Ah. Awesome. Very sexy. Thank you for calling and sharing. We like to start each week's show with a listener's success story before we get to listener problems. If you have a success story you'd like to share, give us a buzz, share yours. We may start next week's Lovecast with your success. Hey, Dan, 39-year-old straight cis male from the Northeast here. I need your help on a family situation with my dad. There's almost too much background to provide since this has been going on in some form for six or seven years. The short version is that my dad had an argument with my sister about basically nothing, something like six years ago. She was rude to him during the argument, and the takeaway is that he ended the argument by getting about a foot away from her face and screaming at her, which intimidated the hell out of her, as you can imagine. There was no physical violence, but I'm not sure my sister would have been totally confident of that in the moment. After that fight, my sister and my dad were never the same. My dad apologized, and they would still speak and see each other, but there was a wedge there. Fast forward to 2017, and my sister's getting married. 
the day of the wedding, the ceremony on the beach is beautiful. We all head inside the cocktail hour. Everyone's having a great time. My sister and I are making the rounds to everyone, including my dad, his family, and my cousins. An hour later, we all sit down to dinner, and in the middle of the meal, my dad, his sisters, and my cousins all get up and start to walk out. He'll tell you it's because it was a Sunday night and everyone had to get home, but my aunt telling me, we know where we're not wanted, gave their real plan away. They had taken my dad's side in this argument that had nothing to do with them and decided to inflict maximum pain on my sister. And it worked. My sister was mortified and ran away crying, which my dad and his family absolutely saw and continued walking out. This was him slamming his hand down on the self-destruct button on his relationship with my sister. Up until that point, I'd been an innocent bystander to all the drama, but once my dad effectively ruined my sister's wedding, I took a stand and cut him and his family and my cousins out of my life. Fast forward a bit more, and he and I now have a strained relationship. I eventually started talking to him again and asked him what he was thinking. He'll go on about how we felt excluded from the wedding, and my sister didn't treat him right, and for some things I can squint my eyes and see what he's talking about, but overall, he went into the wedding expecting to be slighted and found the evidence he wanted in order to walk out. And not for nothing, you reap what you sow. He was the one that caused the rift in the first place. Is it really a surprise that she would want to keep him at a distance or not include him in ways that he thought were appropriate? And also, who the hell cares what he thinks is appropriate? This was my sister's wedding, the day every girl dreams about. Shouldn't she get to have the wedding she wants without someone else deciding they're the arbiter of what's right and wrong for her special day? Anyway, my dad is now asking to see my kids, who he hasn't seen in four years, and I told him no. The extent of our relationship right now, which is talking on the phone a few times a year, is all I really want. So here's my question. As an adult, do you owe your parents any kind of relationship? My dad will tell me, well, I was a great dad for your whole life, which is basically true, but he royally fucked up here, and he's never once tried to reach out to my sister or show any genuine remorse or understanding of how inappropriate his actions were. But even so, am I being an asshole by holding on to this hurt he caused my sister and not wanting him to have any significant role in my or my kids' lives? What do you think, Dan? Am I sticking my nose in where it doesn't belong and I should just get over it and let my dad see his grandkids? Or am I well rid of this toxic relationship? I kind of want to subpoena everybody and depose everybody and get to the bottom of this. What was the fight that your sister had with your dad? I can't imagine what your father did was in any way proportionate or appropriate. Staging that mass walkout at your sister's wedding to inflict maximum emotional devastation on that day at her wedding. Holy shit. What a fucking asshole move, but never letting your father meet his grandkids or see his grandkids ever again. Also an asshole move. Is it proportionate? Is it justified? Is it called for? Well, it would help to know what exactly was going on earlier. Are you in one of those families where everyone just goes to, I can never remember if it's DEFCON 1 or DEFCON 5, but everyone goes to full-out emotional nuclear war whenever there's a conflict and you're denying your father access to his grandkids or never allowing him to see his grandkids ever again. Is is it appropriate or is it retaliatory? Is it the return of that nuclear strike? I, I don't know. But if we just zoom out and take the issue of toxic parents and your dad sounds pretty fucking toxic, that stunt – was pretty fucking toxic. And that's a line you draw in the sand with family where you say, the pleasure that inflicting this pain on you in a public way gives me at this moment is worth nuking our relationship for forever. Yeah, you make that kind of move, there are going to be 
consequences to continue with the nuclear theme, there's going to be a lot of fallout that you should anticipate having to deal with. And part of the fallout of your dad's stunt of the pain he inflicted on your sister is that you have sided with your sister. And not only did he destroy his relationship with his daughter, he destroyed his relationship with his son. And eh, good on you. I do think it's important that siblings stick together. It's especially important when siblings have toxic parents and somehow the two of them together, maybe not were immune from the toxins, but managed to purge them over time and can still have that familial, close, tight sibling relationship while cutting the parents out, cutting out the toxins. So yeah, do you, zooming out, do you have a right to cut off a toxic parent, never see that parent again, not invite that parent to birthday parties for their grandkids or your wedding or your kid's wedding? Absolutely. You know, a lot of people will say that's never okay, not okay forever, not okay to cut off a toxic parent. Those people probably don't have toxic parents in their own families or in other people's families that they've been close to and they haven't seen the damage that kind of toxic parent can do and the wounds that can be ripped back open when you allow that kind of toxic parent back into your life, even in what seems like a very contained or small way, like coming to a wedding or coming to a kid's birthday party. So yeah, you sound like a sane and reasonable person. I'm going to defer to my perception of your sanity and reasonableness and tell you it is okay. If you think this is the best course of action to cut your father off forever and to limit your relationship to those few strained, polite phone calls a year, absolutely. I think that's the right thing to do. Still, on some level, I'm tempted. If I had subpoena power here at the Savage Lovecast, which some of you are lucky I don't, and I could depose people, which I can't, I would want to subpoena and depose all y'all. Hey, Dan. 47-year-old cis male, straight, calling from Canada. I find myself recently uh, separated from my partner of 10 years. Turns out she had an affair. I'm dealing with a lot of issues of trust and confidence. COVID, I have found really hard for the last year or two. I wish I could be phoning in with the COVID success story. I realize this was not a good relationship. If anything, I'm not in better shape than when I found her. Because God knows I've listened to your show for 10 years and read your calm for 10 years. And I, I love the advice you've given in the past. So, I think I'm coming up with a roadmap. But at this point, I feel like to help my confidence, I just want to have sex without any kind of emotional attachment. And I don't know if that's just because I'm hurting right now. Or if it's truly something about confidence. And I'm just wondering what your advice is. Should I wait till I'm a little more healed? Because this only happened two or three weeks ago. Or is this something I can explore that's still going to be safe for me and help build my confidence? Thank you for calling. I'm so sorry that this happened. This was done. This was done to you. I'm so sorry that you're in a lot of pain right now. And I think it's important for me to just note that 
pain that you're in and how clearly that comes across in your call. Because I think sometimes when I talk about infidelity and cheating and I suggest that people should be able to get past it, understand it differently, have different expectations about it, cheating happens. I worry that sometimes I come across as glib about it or that I'm eliding the the pain that people feel when they are cheated on. It is incredibly painful to be cheated on, as is evident, as comes across in your call. And I'm aware of that. I'm cognizant of that. I recognize that. And caller, my heart goes out to you. I don't tell people that I think cheating is something that they should – be able to get past or forgive or heal from or come back from because I don't think it's painful or hard, but indeed it is painful. It is hard. And sometimes it's a long way back whether the relationship survives it or not. And I recognize that. And I'm glad you called and asked this question of me when you're still obviously in so much pain. I think you need to give it some time. It's only been a couple of weeks. You're still really raw. You don't want to, if this is about recovering some sense of self-confidence, you don't want to set yourself up for failure. You don't want to go into a sexual encounter with someone where, of course, you're not going to dump all this on them, all of this pain on them in advance of that first sexual encounter, casual sexual encounter. And if something in the moment triggers you or makes you feel sad or throws you back into the moment and you just kind of melt down. Well, that could set you back on the road to your healing and recovery from this. And it could set you back significantly and really deal an additional blow to your self-confidence. So I would urge you to give this at least another month or two to get through, to sit with your sadness, to eat that ice cream and go to the gym and unload on your friends and feel all the feelings And get yourself to a place where you can think about this and talk about this. Think about what happened to you, what was done to you, what she did without being overwhelmed by those feelings. Because it might come up. You just physically, you might have a physical sense memory when you're having sex with somebody else for the first time that throws you back into sex you used to have with your partner. And you want to make sure if that happens that you're in a place where you can hold it together and you can feel the feeling and let it roll over you and roll out of you and then continue on with whatever it is that you're doing. And that is a skill that you develop. You know, sometimes those feelings of sadness about the end of a relationship, they roll over you when you're waiting for your food in a restaurant or you're talking with a friend about something else or you're on a bike ride. And right now when those feelings come to you, you're probably overwhelmed. You get a little weepy In a month or two, those feelings will come to you and you'll feel them and you'll mark them and you'll honor them and they'll pass without you melting or dissolving into the emotional state that you're now while you're trying to talk with me about this while you're recording your question. So give it a little time. Give it a little extra time. Make sure you're extra ready when you do hook up with someone else casually for the first time. And it's likelier to go well. No guarantee that it will absolutely positively go well, but it's likelier to go well and have the effect on your confidence that you'd like it to have. And if it doesn't go well that first time, well, give yourself a fucking break. You've been through something really traumatic. Treat yourself with some grace and compassion as you work 
through this emotionally, as you work through it socially, as you work through it sexually, you may have setbacks, but that's okay. Everybody does, but you will get past this. And the evidence that you need that you can get past this, it's all around you. The world is full of people who had their hearts broken the way you just had your heart broken, who are now fine, functional, happy, content in new relationships as you will one day be. So while you weren't able to call me this week with a success story, I predict that in six months or a year, you will be. Hey, Dan, I have a question about getting over someone. I've, I've heard you talk about just, you know, don't look at social media, don't talk to them. My situation is I dated someone, they are non-binary for about 10 years and it didn't work out. The sex was terrible, but emotionally I've never connected with someone like that. I've been married since then. I've had a kid since then. I've dated since then. And I always go back to them and I can't seem to move past that relationship. And I know that that person feels the same way, but we, we both gave it our all for 10 years and it didn't work. And I, I don't know what to do. I recently texted with this person. I, I don't want to say that I'm different than anyone else, but I'm picky. I am different. And this person has made me happier than anyone. I don't, I never had strong family. I never had strong friends. And this person was for all intents and purposes, my soulmate. And I can't seem to move past them, even though my life keeps moving forward. But I keep thinking of them. Why can't this person have this soulmate connection with be your best friend, your very intimate best friend, maybe even a bit of a romantic best friendship? Sounds like what didn't work and the reason the relationship ended after 10 years was a buildup of sexual frustration. You say the sex was terrible, but everything else was great. The solution that we're told, that we're lied to and told, is the only available solution on the table is to end that relationship and go find somebody that you can feel as strongly about emotionally, feel that same strong emotional connection with and have awesome sex with. And one person can't be all things to any one person. And it's possible that there's this person is out there and they're capable of being everything that you need a partner to be emotionally, intellectually, even romantically, but sexually. Yeah. It's just not there. And maybe what this reestablished connection is telling you is that you need this person in your life, but you need to think differently about how you could structure your life in such a way that they could be a part of it and play an enormous role in your life, but not be your sexual romantic partner, but be your best fucking friend with whom you are tight in a way that you are tight with no one else. That may require, if you're still with the person that you had the kid with, still with the person you married, that may require you to renegotiate the terms of your marriage with the spouse you have now to make space for you to have what for some people would feel, you know, for some people in your spouse's shoes, 
would feel like emotional infidelity. Now, there are people who want sexual monogamy, made monogamous commitments, and then renegotiated the terms of those commitments to allow for their partners that they wanted and expected and were told they would get monogamy from, renegotiated the terms so their partners could be sexual with other people. I think if people are capable of renegotiating terms around sex, that it stands to reason there's got to be some people out there who can renegotiate terms around emotional exclusivity or regarding certain kinds of like intensities of connections as something that should exist only in the context of that romantic, committed and sexual relationship. Maybe your spouse, if you still have one, can wrap their minds around you having that not with someone else instead, but with someone else also, you know, kind of like polyamory, but just for feelings, a conversation you could have with your spouse. You might want to spare your spouse from hearing that you regard this person that you were in a 10-year relationship with as your soulmate and ideal partner. But obviously, with the intensity of the feelings you have for this person, them exiting your life permanently and forever in the way that you both were convinced that they had to isn't optimal. Isn't making you happy. You want this person in your life, but your life right now, if you're still married, if you're going to make room in your life for this person, your spouse is also going to have to make room in their life because you're going to have to make room in your marriage for this other person. And to do that, you need your spouse's buy-in and your spouse's consent. Hey, Dan and crew, 44-year-old cis female, married for 10, partnered for 15 with my husband. We have a couple kids, 7 and 10. Uh, my partner has made a connection with another woman and wants to explore this. I am feeling unsure. I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable with this whole thing. I would prefer this being something that we like explore and discuss together and make boundaries on together before there's somebody like in the wings. And this person is very much in the wings and very much pursuing my husband. And he is really, really distracted by this. He's like talking about how magical it is and how this never felt like this before, you know, which is hard to hear from somebody you love um, deeply. And I want to be able to give him the things that he wants. And I, I want to be able to say yes to exploring this. Um, and at the same time, I'm feeling pressure to say, to say yes. And part, partly the time frame. she's traveling and back in a couple of weeks, and then we'll be here for a short period of time. There's definitely some judgment on her end that I'm uncomfortable with around like, you know, wanting my husband to be like happy and express joy and express his sexual connections without boundaries. And I'm sort of like, yeah, well, he has responsibilities. Like you're a 25 year old flighty, beautiful person. And I am like the 44 year old wife with kids and job and a business that we run together and building a house. And like, I'm for sure I can't be as flighty and carefree because I have responsibilities. And so that's like really fucking hurting. I guess my question is like, how much should I be pushing my boundaries of like feeling comfortable and letting him explore this relationship? And like, if there's a sexual boundary for me, and I don't totally know why that's maybe more threatening than just having 
being able to like touch or connect or, and I, I don't totally know how to delineate where those boundaries are. And he's asked like, you know, like, what can I, like, what could I do? Like, can I hold her hand? Can I, you know, can we cuddle? Can we, you know, what he's just basically like this freaking horse that I'm holding the reins back on and he'll just like wants to gallop away. And I'm finding it tricky to have a balanced conversation about this with somebody in the wings. So help. (laughs) This is a problem that couples who are contemplating open relationships invariably face. Couples with kids, couples who've been together a long time, couples who have responsibilities, household to run, kids to feed and bathe and get to bed, chores to do, roofs to repair, appliances to maintain, is that the other partners, the quote-unquote, going to use your word here, caller, playmate, represents joy and escape and is kind of, except for during sex, it's frictionless relationship. There's nothing that has to be negotiated or handled. And, and you, the, the spouse at home, you represent what? Chores and grind? And the only way to make sure that that feeling that, oh, this person represents to you joy and escape and pleasure and fun and I'm chores and bath time and dishes and bills is for the couple, the primary couple, the couple opening the relationship to prioritize each other's not just emotional security, not just be honest and keep talking, but prioritize joy in that relationship too so that you aren't to each other just the grind. You're also joy and escape and release and pleasure and fun. And that's something a couple has to really work on and and be smart and conscientious and thoughtful about. And I worry that your husband isn't going to be capable of that because of some of the things he's said to you really do indicate that he doesn't have the emotional IQ or maturity or sensitivity required to make sure that you, the wife at home with the kids, when he's off with his 25-year-old piece on the side with his wife's permission, isn't stewing in resentment and hurt and anger. And those things that he said to you, oh my God, I've never felt this way about anyone before. This is magical. That may be true. You may feel that way as a married person in an open relationship about somebody else that you're able to see honestly, without having to hide it or lie and run around because you have your partner's consent, your spouse's consent, that may be something that you feel. It's not something that you say out loud. Now, I'm sometimes criticized for suggesting to people that relationships aren't depositions and there are sometimes truths you don't tell your partner that you protect them from. These are them. These are, these are, this is a good example of that kind of truth. He may be feeling this. What upside was there in telling you this so you feel even worse about this woman feel even more insecure in your marriage and your relationship more resentful about opening it you can feel these feelings you know if you're in an open marriage and you're allowed to have a girlfriend or see somebody else on the side get some dick elsewhere you may have that kind of new relationship energy the poly people call it where you just feel infatuated and swept away and you have to Not actively lie about it, but yeah, you probably don't want to too actively truth about it either, lest you make your partner at home feel insecure and resentful and hurt and poison that relationship to such an extent 
that your open relationship is going to be high conflict and high drama and bad. Bad for you, bad for your spouse at home, bad for your kids if you have kids in the long run. And so, yeah, caller, you sound down to have an open relationship in theory, but it's not a theoretical open relationship you're contemplating having. You're thinking about having or opening a marriage with this guy in practice, this guy who doesn't have the sense, the emotional maturity, intelligence, empathy to know that he shouldn't have said this shit to you. And so I don't know how you feel safe in this relationship. I don't know how you feel safe in this marriage when he's already demonstrated before, presumably he touches this other woman, that he's not going to conduct himself in such a manner that you feel your feelings are being taken into consideration, that you're being, your feelings are being prioritized in the way they would need to be for your marriage to transition from closed and monogamous to open and non-monogamous and survive. He has to be careful with you. He has to demonstrate that you are still, and this marriage and this family are still his top priority, even if he's really excited about some other woman. And I'm angry. I'm angry. Not my fucking husband. And I'm angry at him for not being able to do that. For not having the sense that God gave a box of M&Ms. And to know that you aren't his best friend. You aren't his confidant. You're his wife. You're his sex partner. He's your sex partner. And what he said is he can't prioritize your feelings. You can't even identify them, anticipate what they might be. How are you ever going to feel safe? Not just in an open relationship married to that man, even in a closed relationship married to that man. You know, maybe he's going to have a bit of a cum springer and come to his senses and apologize to you after he runs off and fucks this woman, probably with your permission. And this will just be a dark period in your relationship. But it's hard not to see how a marriage, if this isn't, uncharacteristic of him, this kind of behavior, this inability to anticipate how you might feel if he said X, how your marriage survives, I would advise you not to give him permission to fuck this woman. You have work to do if the marriage is to survive, if that's what he wants, if this isn't him slamming his hand down on the self-destruct button and destroying your sense of safety and self-esteem in the process. You two need to sit down with a couple's counselor who's pro-poly, pro-open, and pro-closed, and pro-monogamous. And that's what most pro-open, pro-poly couple's counselors are. They're also for what works for an individual couple, not trying to talk all in couples into being non-monogamous. And talk through this and see if your husband can't repair the damage that he's already done to you. And if he can't repair the damage already done, don't open up. And if he's angry and resentful forever because you didn't feel safe in an open relationship with him, well, then you're obviously not safe in a closed relationship with him either. And you're going to have to think about ending it. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis hetero woman in my 40s. And I'm calling because I have all of the feels for a good friend of mine. Fortunately, he's married. And even though him and his wife don't totally believe in monogamy, they've never actually done anything about that. They've never sort of exercised those muscles. So we had a conversation about it, and he's got feelings for me too. 
And the energy between us right now is electric and it's really hard, but neither of us are willing to do anything that would hurt his wife, who is awesome, and his kids, who are also awesome. So it's totally crazy making and I can barely sleep and he's constantly on my mind. <laughs> Don't really know what to do. I'm ethically non-monogamous, so if him and his wife decided to open up their relationship, that would be amazing, even though I'm a little bit hesitant if it's their first foray into ethical non-monogamy because I don't know if it's always smooth sailing from the beginning and I don't really want to end up like collateral damage. I don't know. Anyway, he adds so much to my life and I don't want to stop hanging out with him, but I honestly don't know what to do with all of this energy. We play music together, so we have, like, a bit of an outlet, but it just feels super hard to have all of this desire and nowhere for it to go. Since the other couple isn't in an open relationship, there's nothing you can do with this crazy, sexy, horny energy except the obvious, and that is to masturbate on it. You know, like the Fundy Christian's talking about praying on it. Just need to masturbate on it until it passes. Sometimes masturbating about someone you can't have feels like it's going to make it worse that you can't have them. But often, you know, plowing the sexual energy, uh, the eroticism of that connection, even though it can never, at least under current circumstances, be realized tactically in the moment, physically with that other person, that can help you not get over it, get past it, but get something out of it. And as time passes, you know, it'll, it'll dispel some of that erotic energy, some of that erotic tension, some of that buildup. And then as time passes, you know, these kinds of crushes have a way of working themselves out. The unrealizable desire, the forbidden desire, it has a way, you know, that intensity, the longer you know someone sometimes, it passes, it, 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 it ebbs. And masturbating about it along the way, yeah, well, then you got a lot of really hot, sexy fantasies and orgasms out of it as you toughed it out, as you gutted it out, as you jacked it out, as you plitted it out. And so there'll be something in it for you too. Not ultimately the thing you want most and that you fear, you know, if you're the reason they open their relationship you worry about being collateral damage. You know, if the open relationship doesn't go well, if he doesn't handle it the way he should, and if he is as careless and thoughtless with his wife as the previous caller's husband has been with her, yeah, the odds that it could go spectacularly badly and you could wind up collateral damage and that you get to be with this guy for a little bit, but then you get cast aside as he refocuses on his marriage to save it because he fucked it up if he acts like the previous caller's husband did. Yeah, you could be that kind of collateral damage, but there's always a risk we're going to be collateral damage in any relationship, open or closed, whether we're single and dating another single person or whether we're interacting with somebody or dating with somebody or hooking up with somebody who has a primary partner. There's always that risk of getting cast aside, of being collateral damage. But can't be collateral damage in them opening up their relationship if they're not going to open up their relationship. And so – there's your answer. If it's not open and there's no sign it's going to be open and he knows that you want him and he wants you but nothing can be done about it, well, circling back to my original advice, something can be done about it. You can do yourself about it over and over and over again until it passes. 
Hey, Dan, I'm a female early 30s and I have a problem I could really use your advice on. So my partner and I have been together for about five years and we're actually supposed to be getting married in two weeks. But last night, my partner kind of dropped a bomb on me that has left me super confused and just overwhelmed with where we're at and what the hell to do. So for backstory, about three or four years ago when we started getting serious, we had a lot of talks or arguments, whatever, about having kids. I've always wanted kids, just like one or two He was on the fence, but leaning no when we first started dating. A lot of his reasoning had to do with the overpopulation of the planet, global warming, and increasingly scarce resources. He's a pessimist and leans almost worst-case scenario when it comes to the future of the planet. And I understand where he's coming from with his concerns. I mean, I also worry about the state of the planet and the future and everything. But I also want to raise kids to value the planet and other values we have, like reproductive rights, Black Lives Matter. And I almost feel like we have a duty to not let the super religious conservatives be the only ones to reproduce. So we end up with an idiotocracy or whatever. So after a lot of back and forth and almost breaking up a few times, he agreed he wants kids. And for the last few years, we've been talking and making plans with that as our future. Things like moving closer to family, jobs, what house we're in, and just the little comments that you make when that's something that you envision in your future. Then last night, out of nowhere, he says he can't fathom bringing a child into this world given the state of the planet and the downhill trajectory it's on. And I was shocked to hear that. He went on to say that he's given it a lot of thought and he just can't have kids, that he feels like it would be irresponsible and cruel to them. And he can't do that to someone he's supposed to love so much. I get where he's coming from, but like, shit, this is a make or break subject and we're getting married in two fucking weeks. I mean, I knew he felt this way in the past, but for years he's been super on board with and excited about having kids. And I feel shocked and hurt that all of a sudden he's changed his mind. Also, without discussing it with me first... Besides the shitty unilateral way he made this decision and informed me of it, I just don't know what to do about this. Does this mean I call off the wedding? Do I go ahead with it and figure or hope this was just a stressful time and he'll go back to wanting kids once he's through all of this? Help me, Dan. I'm just so at a loss. I'm sure it's not the only reason you want kids, but it's the only reason you really cited and unpacked is this fear that Bundy Christians and evangelicals are outbreeding sane and sensible people and hurtling us toward or closer toward or reinforcing the idiocracy that we already have. But here's a little bouquet of headlines for you. More young adults are leaving religion. Why American Christians are turning people off, particularly young people, their young people from the church. Millennials are leaving religion and not coming back. Why some younger evangelicals are leaving the faith. Six reason young Christians leave the church. Addressing the exodus of young people from the church. A lot of those kids that evangelical and fundy Christians are having and attempting to indoctrinate grow up and walk the fuck away. So... You having one or two kids who could, you could raise them to be secularists and atheists and they could get religion to rebel against secular mom in their teens or 20s. Your kids aren't the only ones. We can count on a huge number of their kids growing up to be more like 
the kids we would have raised if we'd had them. Uh, but that's kind of beside the point, and I really think not what's going on here with your fiance, who either didn't want kids and then had a change of heart that was genuine and sincere and wanted kids and has had another change of heart now and no longer wants kids, taking them back to his original position, but it was all honest and true and he wasn't bullshitting you or lying to you, or your fiancé decided to tell you what you wanted to hear and run out your biological clock and get you closer to a point where calling off the wedding, extricating yourself from this relationship was a lot harder and really raised the stakes and attempted to force your hand and shut down the possibility of children for you in this way. Only you are in a position to judge whether you think he was genuine and honest and sincere in his journey from not wanting them to wanting them to not wanting them or if he was being manipulative and playing you. If he was being manipulative and playing you, trying to run out your biological clock, get you two weeks from the altar, then drop this bomb, don't marry him. If it was genuine, didn't want him, wanted him, doesn't want him, maybe don't marry him. Certainly don't marry him with the expectation that he's going to come around again or change his position Again, but don't marry him until uh, – I want to say until there's a, some resolution here, until he's on the same page that you are or you're on the same page about having kids that he is. But he's already indicated that he's kind of a pendulum swinging around for real and honest and true reasons or for bullshit manipulative reasons. You could go to him and say, I'm going to call the wedding off and he could say, all right, I've changed my mind again. Can you trust him? Seems to me – that if you really, really want kids, you should find somebody who really, really wants them just as much as you do. Not somebody you have to talk into it. I, I say that knowing so many couples where one person didn't want kids, one person did. Eventually they did have kids and they both now are happy to have kids. There are also people I know who were in relationships where one person wanted kids, the other didn't. They had a kid and the relationship ended because that person who didn't want kids really didn't want kids and it didn't work out and they were unhappy in the relationship because they had kids they didn't want. That felt imposed. That wasn't the life that they wanted. Yeah, so uh, you're in an impossible position. This is an impossible situation. It's really hard to know what to do. And I guess what I keep coming back to is why are you in this impossible position, this impossible situation? Because mm, he put you there. Did he do that maliciously, knowingly, with malice aforethought? Or does he just have cold feet? If it's just cold feet, maybe don't marry him. But at least, at the very least, you're going to have to delay this wedding. But if it was malice, if he was manipulating you, trying to run out your biological clock again, don't marry him at all, ever. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Adam Smith, co-host of the Logbooks podcast, arts events producer, and author of the new book, Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures. Hey, Adam, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Hey, Dan, thanks very much for having me. Uh, I, I finished the book last night and I really, really enjoyed it. And in some ways it took me back. I'm 56 years old. 
So I came out uh, at the very end of the 70s before HIV AIDS, and I've been observing closely uh, gay male culture this entire time. But before we get into that, before we get into poppers and how they relate to gay men, gay male sex cultures, I wanted to ask you to define poppers. What are they chemically? What is, what are poppers? Yeah, well, poppers is the, the, the kind of the street name, I guess you could call it, for this collection of different chemical substances, the first of which is amyl nitrite. And that's in many ways the most famous of the substances. And that's the one that dates back to 1844 and to first medical uses in 1867. But since then, uh, because of laws and regulations and also just competition between companies there are other substances pentyl nitrate butyl nitrite uh, butyl nitrate and uh, these different substances collectively we call them poppers and i can go into why we call them poppers if you want but basically it's a chemical compound it's a liquid it's a bunch of carbons and hydrogens together in a liquid in today in a little bottle but the liquid itself is not the the good stuff the stuff that people really are interested in is the vapor that rises from that liquid and when you sniff that vapor it dilates your muscles uh, it reduces your blood pressure it gives you a little head rush and it's really nice to do that during sex so that's broadly poppers <laughs> tell us about the guy who discovered them that was one of the i thought the most fascinating uh, things i learned reading the book yeah, well, there was a chemist in France called Antoine Jerome Ballard who first synthesized amyl nitrite in 1844, but he didn't imagine a use for it. It just made him blush, you know, a little head rush, bit of a blush. And he was like, well, what's the point in this? It's a bit smelly. I sniff it and it gives me a head rush. He couldn't think of what to do with it. And then um, other scientists had found that actually uh, it does these things to the body, like dilate the blood vessels and cause a bit of a head rush and um, those sorts of things, relax the muscles. And so they had published papers on that effect and they'd spotted that effect in rabbits and cats that they'd chucked into boxes and poured fumes <laughs> of poppers into it with them so those poor animals uh, so they had discovered that and but then there was still no real use for it and there was a guy from scotland called thomas louder brunton who's um really pretty gorgeous if you want to google a picture of him you can look at him thomas louder brunton um big lovely victorian beard and a very friendly scottish physician bedside manner and he was treating patients with angina and uh, he knew that one of the problems with patients with angina was the thing that caused the pain to the heart when an angina attack came on was that there wasn't enough blood getting into the heart so he had read those papers that uh, sniffing this stuff dilated the blood vessels and gets more blood going around the body and he tried that on his patient for the first time in 1867 and he noticed that it worked and suddenly all of finally actually there was a medical use for this substance so you write that after the medical use was discovered that they used poppers, amyl nitrate to treat menstrual cramps, angina, that the heart condition, asthma, migraines, even seasickness. When and how did poppers make the leap to gay right. men? Well, this is the thing that we don't know. If I had more, if I had more money and time and was able to travel last year, um, then maybe we, you know, I could have, um, narrowed it down a little bit more. For sure, we, there are, there are rumors, there are talks, there are references to medical students in the 1930s being the great innovators that started to realize that there were pleasures and recreational <laughs> gains to be had from sniffing amyl nitrite. Uh, but certainly by the 50s and 60s, as you 
gradually get this clustering of specifically gay men or men having sex with men in big cities like New York and London and San Francisco. During those decades is when uh, the the leap really happened and that actually um, on the level of a culture, people were sniffing poppers, uh, calling them poppers, sniffing poppers and um, doing pleasure out of it. I cannot pinpoint the bedroom and the specific moment, moment and the specific <laughs> coupling where it happened. I'd kind of love to do that. But on the other hand, it's kind of nice that we don't know that and so much and this is part of just exploring queer history generally right is that so much is hidden so much is actively censored and so much is um left unsaid and and self-censored by people who don't necessarily leave traces about their lives certainly in earlier decades because of safety and so we can't really pinpoint these things but but we just know that at some point it became absorbed into queer community and isn't that great (laughs) so a branch of the Fonda family, the famous acting family here, Henry, Peter, Jane, has a really interesting connection to poppers. Can you share that? Yes, I can, of course. So the reason why poppers are called poppers is because they were originally uh, manufactured in small glass ampoules, uh, little glass capsules where the glass was so fragile that you could, that the way that you would use poppers is you would you would break that glass and that it would release the vapor from inside with a bit of a pop because of the glass being broken and the pressure in the thing. And so that was why they were called poppers. Um, obviously, this technology was a bit limited because, you know, you don't want to have broken glass everywhere. And there was uh, an inventor at uh, Burroughs Welcome, the pharmaceutical company. And uh, what's really interesting about him is that he came up with an early invention, an early inhaler, which um, was a much safer way of administering amyl nitrite vapors into the nose basically and so this um and he patented this uh when he you know during his work at Burroughs welcome and um i think it's great and you know his name is howard Brees fonda and uh, he was born in 1896 and yeah he he applied for this patent hence the name poppers because of the popping sound that the vial makes when it breaks particularly after it was encased in the the, the thing that this fonda who's related to the other the famous fondas here invented yes. Yes, and the, and the invention had this quite ingenious uh, system of twisted uh, two different levels of glass and two different levels of twisted paper, um, which would catch the glass but still allow the fumes to come through so that you could sniff them and relieve your angina pain or just give yourself a little pleasure if that's what you were after. So you write uh, poppers were both countercultural simply by being gay and also deeply conventional in how they were marketed. Can you uh, unpack that? How were they marketed to gay men and what conventions did that marketing embrace or reinforce? Well, something really interesting happened, I think, in the 1970s around uh, the around capitalism, advertising, products, cultures and gayness and manness as well. Gay manness, let's say. Right. And what happened was um, that there was a significant market demographic by this point in those big cities like San Francisco, London and uh, New York. And, um, that, you know, there were, there were gay publications, there were gay bars, there were gay districts, in fact, um, and certain, you know, clothing that people wore, you know, the idea of the clone, all of these things. There were, there was kind of, this was like a commodified and commodifiable demographic. And, um, in order to create that, 
um, this solid idea, this solid demographic that could be marketed to, what you saw, what you see consistently in that time is the application of, uh, what I would say is like conventional ideas of masculinity. So if we think of the images that we're familiar with from artists like Tom of Finland, these like super butch guys in jeans or in leather, maybe they've got some hand tools with them, or maybe they're propping up a motorbike, or maybe they're at a pump, a, a, a petrol, a gas station pump or something like that or they've got or they're cops you know these 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 traditional conventional ideas of masculinity and in a way that was obviously subverting those ideas because these were all gay men and they were going to have sex with each other so that's subverting what that idea of masculinity was and it was changing this idea of like that gayness was like feminine and weak and submissive and all of those things but on the other hand it's deeply deeply conventional because these were ideas of masculinity that everybody else was aspiring to as well and the poppers adverts at the time at absolutely use those that same iconography of those kinds of like really really butch hench guys with giant pecs and abs 18 abs a person you know (laughs) it's funny how what is kind of revolutionary or seems revolutionary can become a convention that then we need to revolt against again because you know that image of the hyper masculine gay man was pushing back against cultural prejudices directed at gay men that said that all gay men were weak and effeminate sissies. And there was this reaction from gay men. Tom Finland was a gay man and he began doing his drawings when no one was paying him for them. So he wasn't participated in, uh, you know, a capitalist economy that was searching out masculine images of gay men. He was creating them for himself for the most part and hiding them because he was, you know, came up at a time when he'd go to jail for being gay. And so this, you know, there's a brace of this idea that gay, that gay men can also be masculine and that you can be the one getting fucked and be masculine. And this idea that had been really, I don't know, promoted by the culture, even embraced by some gay communities early on, that the person who was doing the fucking wasn't gay. It was the person who was getting fucked. Right. <laughs> was the weak and effeminate one. And then that becomes itself, you know, embraced by gay communities. You know, the, the idea of the clone, it becomes ubiquitous and oppressive itself, even though it originated in uh, a resistance to the oppression of, of gay men and the erasure of masculine gay men. Yeah. And of course, within this, you've got Popper's fumes. And that is a story within this whole theme that you're talking about there that has not really been told before and that was one of the things that why I wanted to write the book is like well where are poppers in this whole picture because Mm -hmm. on the one hand you've got one of the reasons why a lot of people sniff poppers is because it helps them to get fucked because it relaxes their muscles and it opens their bum holes so that they can get fucked there, right? Which is lovely. And so um, that's one of the reasons why people sniff poppers. So that is in the, as you know, this conventionally, I, you know, this conventionally assumed submissive role, uh, effeminate role, whatever you want to call it. Um, and yet at the same time, poppers is a drug and um, sniffing any drug is always, or taking any drug, whether it's alcohol or whatever, is often a, uh, you know, an endurance thing and is often classed in certain subcultures. Um, that there, there are kind of like mini practices that build up around endurance, around taking a particular drug or not. And mm-hmm. so that is absolutely something that happens with, with poppers as well. And then bringing right up to date more recently with popper beta videos online where the, the maker of those videos really, really forces the watcher of those porn videos into a kind of endurance test where the maker is like instructing them on when to sniff their poppers and telling them. And it's like a, like a personal trainer or something like that. It's like this endurance trial. So poppers are, are like 
in that whole conversation as well about, well, what is, you know, what's strength, what's weakness, like what kind of gay are, are we? That kind mm. of thing. And I just find that whole thing really interesting too. <laughs> you know, the, my experience with poppers when I first came out, uh, when I got my first serious boyfriend and he wanted to fuck me and that just wasn't going well, mm-hmm. um, was he took me down to the, the gay bookstore in our college town and we got poppers and they were sort of <laughs> training wheels. Right. Uh, yeah. And we used them until, you know, I made an association between his giant dick in my ass and the feeling of pleasure as opposed right. to panic and terror and pain. And then we stopped. <laughs> then we stopped using them. And that may have been something to do with, you know, at the time there was some speculation that uh, what they called gay cancer might be caused by overuse of poppers, overexposure to poppers. That was not true. Uh, but a lot of people in the 80s kind of, dialed back their popper use or stopped using poppers and they became far less ubiquitous in the late eighties and into the nineties. And what I've noticed as an observer of younger gay men these days is it came roaring back at some point. And a lot of young gay men, in in my experience, some of them may may even be dependent on poppers. They've made such a strong association. You know, the association I made when my boyfriend was fucking me between pleasure, my ass, his dick, and poppers were incidental. I, I've observed that there are a lot of gay men out there who have a kind of psychological dependence on poppers because they associate using them with getting off and they need it. And I worry that, you know, I, I, I'm in favor of moderation in, in all things, including moderation. You get to go off the deep end every once in a while and you should. But I look at how ubiquitous poppers have become again sort of like they were in the 60s and 70s when you could buy them over the counter, amyl nitrate. Now it's a controlled substance in the UK and the US. Am I right to be concerned or am I just being an old? Uh, (laughs) No, I don't think you're being an old. You are rightly raising concerns and observations. I like the phrase that you use something like, as an observer of young gay men. (laughs) I wonder like where, you know. And and an occasional indulgery, I have to say, full disclosure. Um, No, so, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, on the one hand, there's always been a moral panic about poppers. You talked about the one that happened in the early to mid 80s around HIV AIDS. That was a a moral panic. Um, Every so often now, every eight months or so, someone will drink a whole bottle of poppers and die because that's not the thing to do with them and they can really harm you if you do that. And then there'll be mm-hmm. a hot moment in the press for a week or two about this dangerous sex craze that is killing our teenagers, that kind of thing. So on the one hand, there is always a moral panic about these things and um, we have to uh, kind of bear that in mind and just know that that's the way that society and certainly the, the media often uh, treat any kind of substance that many people don't use or don't understand. So we have to be cautious about um, letting those things get overblown. On the other hand, you're right. It's the same as any, it's the same as any substance. You know, there are people who um, can fall into bad habits and patterns where they are over-reliant on it. It's not an actually addictive substance, but I certainly think it can be, it has become, it can become a habit for some people just like needing um, other things in order to have sex. And so I don't think that it's in a special category in that sense. I think it's, you know, the same as it ever was. And it's the same with every other substance is it's about moderation and it's about as a community, how, 
how do we take care of each other? And if you're in a sexual community uh, or sexy community uh, where you are seeing that kind of thing affecting those around you or the people that you're sleeping with, then, um, you know, that's just, it's, it's the same thing that you have to uh, think about and question like, okay, you know, does this have, person have a problem? Do they need help with this? And that's the same at the more extreme end of the scale of substance abuse, like alcohol or other drugs to do with chemsex, for example. Uh, you know, so it's just about keeping it on a watch, really. Mm-hmm. Can, can I ask you a personal question? Of course, please. How old are you? Oh, I'm 36. Okay. I, I, you know, I just, I want to complicate your understanding of the, the quote unquote moral panic around poppers okay. in the early 80s. Yes. Because I was there. Right. And the government didn't give a shit that we were all suddenly dying, that all my friends were suddenly dying. Yeah. And so it wasn't, you know, a campaign from the National Institute of Health that was telling us that maybe it was poppers. The moral panic was gay men looking at each other dying and trying to figure out what was going on at a moment that nobody gave a shit that we were dying. And one of the things that we saw there may be a, we, we, there was this, you know, there was this, inference of a causal relationship when it was just a correlational relationship that a lot of the guys who were dying were heavy popper users, but everybody was. And so people were looking around going, what can we do differently to save our lives? And somebody said, ah, it's poppers. And everybody stopped using poppers. And so we were, I, I, I just, I would push back against describing that as a moral panic. It was just a fucking panic panic. Yes. Yeah. I, no, you're, you're right. I obviously what you, what you said is right there. I would, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, call it a moral panic i shouldn't have called it a moral moral panic no among, i'm not scolding you i'm not scolding you i think like looking back through from this from this vantage point from this vantage point it has it all the hallmarks panic. of a moral panic and it was certainly picked up by the media and amplified that's what i mean it that's became what... a kind of moral panic but at the moment when that first went around it was like we were the ones going ah maybe it's poppers yes you're right and and that was where there were campaigns that came from the community um, mm-hmm. around that particular point so you're right no when i say moral panic i'm thinking of it in the in the media terms because there's stories that i tell in the book in the uk of some newspaper stories in 86 leading to some police raids in 86 and 87 uh in yeah. in in one of our best and um enduring gay bars the royal Vauxhall tavern and um and then continued media stories about that as well and so it, it's 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 really the people who don't understand a substance and who don't understand a subculture. It's those people that I think are the uh, the people the perpetrators of a moral panic around poppers and around you know it's it's the same with lots of other substances and lots of other practices that are to do with certain uh, you know subcultures or certain communities. It's 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 that where I put the word moral panic. You're right that it was. It was just a panic mode com- with complete understanding within the community. And but you're right also that authorities seized on it and took that our panic and weaponized it and then used it against us and raided bars and raided uh, gay bookstores and seized poppers. It became, you know, it became a stick, another stick that they could pick up and beat us with. My last question, you write in the book about gay male identity, gay male sex cultures, subcultures, uh, gay male notions of masculinity and, and marketing. Uh, you say, though, that poppers point us to a queer future. What is the queer future that poppers is a part of or is helping to shape? I think it's a future where we eliminate what I call the poisons in our bodies, and I might also say our minds, which are things like shame, 
and uh, things like homophobia and transphobia and biphobia, etc. And we're having eliminated those, we can really see the potential of our bodies, and the, including the sexual potential of our bodies. And um, that is possible when you in my in my case and in the case that I'm making in the book I'm not really making a case for people to go out and sniff poppers but I'm just saying that poppers can project us by their nature into this kind of future because if you sniff poppers you get this 45 seconds where all of those things fall away and you're a deeply sexual um uh, creature for for that moment really you're in this future version of yourself you're sexual you feel empowered you feel sexy you feel desired you feel desirable and you desire others and that moment that you have without those poisons without those inhibitions without the labels and categories that we place on ourselves that moment is a queer future and poppers give us the glimpse of that it just it nudges us into that for 45 seconds but of course we're we're pulled right back into the everyday reality and i also say that i explain how performers give us that glimpse as well in the same way that poppers do but actually of mm-hmm. course we're living in the real world and we can't we you know we don't ever get there we're chasing that all the time and what is queer and what is the future future is of course evolving and changing all the time we're chasing it all the time so really all i'm saying is like this is this is my idea of queerness is it's always alternative it's always looking towards a better freer future and recognizing the potential of our bodies and that potential is moving forward all the time and that is really interesting and enlightening and enlivening to me and that is what excites me and that's why i wrote the book that's that really speaks to my own personal experience, even though I only used poppers as training wheels. It helped me glimpse my capacity to enjoy penetration and right. experience it and then have it. And, you know, it helped me see what I was, what, what I was capable of, what my body was capable of. And, and poppers helped get me there. And that's what's really interesting about the certain jurisdictions around the world where poppers are banned completely, unless you have a prescription, such as Canada and Australia. And uh, we've seen over recent years more and more people successfully making the claim to their doctor that they should be given a prescription for amyl nitrite or one of the nitrites, specifically not um, to try to convince, to to sort of convince, you know, to lie to their doctor to say, oh, it's because I've got a heart problem, but actually to say, you know what, this is. I need this for my sexual satisfaction and uh, to, to release the, poten- the sexual potential of my body. And that is a medical and a mental health imperative. And some doctors, the, the, in my opinion, the right ones have said, you know what, you're right. That is a medical and a mental health perspective, um, uh, you know, um, prerogative. So, you know, here you go. Here's the prescription. And that's wonderful. Now, that doesn't mean to say that the ban is a good thing in those other countries anyway, um, as a controlled substance. We can talk about drugs policy another time, maybe, Dan. But, um, What's really interesting is the claim that actually, you know, your sexual potential um, is a a, a physical and a mental health need. And I think that we don't really think about it in that way as as much as we should. And that makes poppers, for some, a perfectly legitimate substance to use. Right, exactly. You know, and if the doctor orders that, then great. (laughs) Adam Smith, co-host of the Logbooks podcast, author of the new book, fascinating book, Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone, Adam. I really appreciate it. And congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. I've had a blast. Cheers, Dan. Hi, Dan. I am a cisgendered woman living in the Midwest. So I've been seeing this guy since my divorce about four years ago. And 
He's been divorced probably about, oh gosh, 15 years. We're both in our 60s, young 60s, and we've had a pretty intense relationship. Um, the sex has been really great. Um, there is a problem though, as there always is. He, I don't know, has this weird relationship with his adult kids where he's very protective of his time with them and he's only just sort of let me begin hanging out with him a tiny bit, but um, he lives about two hours away. We don't see each other a lot and he will, you know, cancel things at the drop of the hat if his kids are around. He'll be late to do things with his kids and just put me off, but the real kind of seems like a deal breaker for me is I'm not included in um, major holidays like Christmas and New Year's. So um, it's true I'm not a skier and they tend to go away and ski, but I feel they're left out and he's made it really clear that his kids are his first priority and he is tired of being, I don't know, hounded about it. And I don't hound him about it. I'm just really disappointed each holiday. And I feel like he's almost like gaslighting me, saying like, oh, you just want somebody who's going to be there all the time. And, you know, I, I don't want a husband. I had a husband. I'm not interested in that. I just need to know that my person is there for me all the time. I like to feel included. And he sort of let uh, his daughter call the shots on this one. She's as I said, an adult child, either he lets her do this or he's just very protective of their quote-unquote special time. So, Dan, I actually did break up with a man about two months ago. It's been really difficult. I've tried to do this before. I keep wanting to go back to him, but I, I guess I just want somebody who's absolutely all in. So, I guess the question is, am I throwing this away or am I standing my ground because, hey, who doesn't want to be included? So you two were sexually compatible, but you weren't compatible on expectations around the relationship and what it meant and what he could give you or what he wouldn't give you. You say you don't want to be married again, but you want to have a person, you want your person, and you want both of you to be all in on that relationship. And you want to be included in all family functions. And he wasn't able to give you that. And it sounds like he was a little bit of an asshole about not giving you that instead of making clear to you what he was up for, what he wanted, which was something more casual than what you wanted. And one of you was going to have to pay the price of admission if you wanted that relationship to go on. And it sounds like for most of the relationship, you were paying that price of admission. You were home alone for the holidays when you would have liked to have been included and he was never going to include you. So yeah, as painful as it was to end this relationship, you were absolutely right to end it. It couldn't just be what he wanted on his terms anymore because that was, for you, more painful than being alone and starting over and trying to seek a new sex partner, somebody else out there that you could have great sex with who also wanted to be not just the person who circled back to you for some casual sex, not just your friend with benefits, not just your fuck buddy, but even if you didn't marry, you wanted that person to be your partner, your person and you wanted that person, your person to include you in the way a spouse could reasonably expect to be included. Be clear about that going forward. As painful as it is for you to end this relationship right now was the right move. And I would encourage you 
not to go back to paying the price of admission that you had been paying. If anyone's going to pay a price of admission now to be in this relationship, for you to be happy in it, it's going to have to be him. He's going to have to change the way he relates to you. If he's capable of that, maybe you could get back together again. But be clear and be firm. Getting back together means I'm your person. You're my person. I'm included. He can't do that. And he's already kind of demonstrated to you and proven that even if he could, he doesn't want to. But if he can't, yeah, it's going to have to be somebody else. You're going to have to find somebody else. I think you should get on top of that. Don't wait for him to come around. Don't wait for him to call you and reopen negotiations. If he calls you, if he circles back, if he wants to get back together, okay. You can maybe get back together with him, but you're going to want to move on with your life now. Not sit at home alone with your phone in your hand hoping he calls. You're seeing somebody else and you're happy and he calls. Yeah, you can tell him to fuck off. If he calls in a year and he's willing to give you what you want, what you need in a relationship and you're not happy with the person you're seeing then or you're still single then, well, then maybe you could give him another chance. All right, before we get to listener response calls, let's read some of those listener tweets we love so much. Emily Ann tweets, I've never willingly Googled a Breitbart article before, article in scare quotes, but after listening to at fake Dan Savage's opening rant on the Savage Lovecast this week, I had to read that for myself to see if I could follow the logic. Nope. Yeah, the logic was a little twisty and hard to follow. Basically, Breitbart is arguing that progressives and liberals are trying to trick Trump voters into not getting vaccinated by pretending that we want them to get vaccinated, which we don't because we want them to die and not be able to vote for Trump ever again. Which left me wondering this week where Breitbart was after Tucker Carlson went on Fox and told his viewers that true patriots and men with high testosterone do not get vaccinated. Apparently, Tucker Carlson himself is in on this conspiracy to get Trump voters killed. Kendra Holiday tweets, Today's Savage Lovecast 778 features Lee Cohort, author of Hurt So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose. The discussion reminded me of the concept of benign masochism, a term coined by Paul Rosen, Ph.D., where people seek out safe threats. And finally, Pendotchka tweets, I had one bite of camembert cheese and immediately thought of the Savage Lovecast episode where Dan talked about this cheese tasting exactly like his ex-boyfriend's jizz. I immediately threw it in the trash. Thank you for ruining my day, Dan. Sorry about ruining your day, Pendotchka. But it was my cum, not my boyfriend's cum, that tasted exactly like camembert cheese and still does, just for the record. Not sure that would have made any difference for you in that moment with that camembert that you were trying to enjoy. Just in case, it would help to think tastes like Dan's cum. Thought I'd share. All right. Thanks to everyone who tweeted or posted to social media about the show last week. We really appreciate it. It helps spread the word about the show. And if you want me to potentially read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now listener response calls. Hi, Dan. This is for episode 778, the guy who is dating a woman, a white woman who dreads her hair, and he's wondering if it's a deal breaker. Recently, I purchased a red baseball cap with the word vaccinated on the front of it, and I actually wrote vaccinated on the back of it because I don't think any particular group should own the look of the red baseball cap. That said, I wore it once outside at my apartment pool, 
And judging by the look of a woman across the pool from where I was, it was who cannot read the word vaccinated. It was far too traumatizing for people to see. And I put that hat back in my closet. I have no desire to add to any anger or ugliness in the world. And I hope eventually people can wear red baseball caps without it causing an aneurysm. Hey, so for the person on episode 778, wondering what erotic stories they might be into, the absolute best way to figure this out is fanfiction. Go to archiveofourown.org, pick a hot character from your favorite TV show or movie, and read hundreds of stories about them doing all kinds of fascinating stuff. The advantages? Everything is free, and almost everything is tagged for what's in the stories, so it's really easy to find more of what you want and avoid what you don't. It's amazing. Check it out. Hi, Dan. Magnum subscriber, longtime listener with a response call for the couple with the toilet paper issue. Uh, My first thought was, why can't he take a couple rolls of his preferred toilet paper from his place and leave them at her place? Problem solved. Then she doesn't have to go against her moral compass and support a company who does not produce sustainable products. Problem solved. Win-win. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get into us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. My new book, Savage Love from A to Z, is out now everywhere books are sold. And Portland, I'll be at Mississippi Studios this Saturday, October 2nd at 1 p.m. to celebrate the publication of this book, to reminisce about the last 30 years of Savage Love, and to read a couple of excerpts. Your admission price includes a copy of the book, and I'll be signing them after the show. Go to savage.love slash events for tickets. Hey, Portland, that's not all. I'll also be hosting Hump at Revolution Hall this Friday, October 1st. The 9 p.m. show is sold out, but there are still a few tickets left for the 6.30 p.m. show, so grab them while they're still grabbable. At Columbus, Hump is also screening this weekend in your neck of the woods at Gateway Film Center. Go to humpfilmfest.com for tickets and go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit to find out how you can make an amateur porn film for our 2022 edition of Hump. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Adam Smith on Twitter at Adam Smith. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Artunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.